Welcome to another installment of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Dominic Tyre, and I'm Pharma Forum's creative and editorial director. For episode 31, George Underwood, who's the editor of Pharma Forum's digital magazine Deep Dive, speaks to Guy Goldberg from Red Hill Biopharma about new ways to treat COVID. Guy is Chief Business Officer at Red Hill and previously served at the specialty injectable drug development company Eagle Pharmaceuticals. And before that, he was a member of the investment team at ProQuest Investments. Here, he talks about the potential for new COVID-19 therapeutics to help fight the pandemic and treat patients in the years to come. He also shares his views on the factors that have caused COVID treatments to show mixed results so far, and why new COVID therapeutics are still so important, even as vaccines become available. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. Hello, Guy. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on, and we're very interested to hear about Red Hill's work on COVID-19 treatments. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start off, if we if we cast our minds back to what feels like 10 years ago, but it's actually only spring last year, um, it seemed medical headlines were dominated by news about COVID-19 therapeutics, but these drugs seem to have fallen out of the news a little compared to vaccines now. Can you speak to why these therapeutics are still important, even when we do have a vaccine? Yeah, thank you for the question. It's a very important point. Uh, Vaccines have had uh, success, and and we're, of course, all thrilled about that. Uh, But unfortunately, the problem isn't going away. In fact, uh, the the CEO of Moderna, which is one of the the leading COVID-19 vaccine makers, said specifically uh, just a while ago that, 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 unfortunately, the virus is is here and is gonna stay with the world forever. Um, And in fact, public health officials, infectious disease experts, everyone is is talking about COVID-19 becoming an endemic disease, meaning it's it's, it's gonna be something that we we have to deal with as a a society, as a a global community now uh, going forward. Uh, The reason for that is is the vaccine is very widespread, Uh, it's mutating, and, uh, and we don't even know with the vaccines whether they stop the virus or they just stop the symptoms. You see record cases in the U.S., record cases uh, across uh, Europe and, and the world. Uh, and and there's, there's questions also on durability of these vaccines. How long do they last? We don't know the answer to these questions. In our rush to get the vaccines uh, approved uh, and, and out there to people, rightly so, uh, there's still many, many questions uh, left uh, unanswered. And unfortunately, um, as we have had success, we have not seen the same success uh, in terms of therapeutics, which is why it is so important that that is not neglected and, in fact, is a focus for, for everybody from uh, public health officials to, to companies, uh, to, to uh, physicians, uh, which it is anyway, uh, given the, the huge uh, infection rate and, and, and hospitalization rate that we see right now. And as you say, there have been a few ups and downs of existing COVID therapeutics and some back and forth on how effective some of them might really be. What would you say have been the biggest challenges in developing truly effective treatments so far? The big challenge is time, I think. That's how I see it. We don't have time. 
Um, you know, if you look at the fact that just from where we are to what, you know, a year ago, ago, a year ago, we, we've expected and demanded from the, the pharma companies of the world to produce vaccines and to produce treatments. And that's a, a tough, tough thing to do in uh, giving how drugs are developed, which they're uh, done stepwise in terms of getting preclinical data and clinical data and discussions with regulatories and validating the data. Um, it's all something that takes time, which we don't have. So I think time has been the big, biggest challenge in, in getting the right approach and, and, and uh, keeping up with the evolving understanding uh, of the virus, which is we start off with zero and it's still, there's a lot about this, this virus that we don't know. Uh, so I think that's been the biggest challenge for, for anybody working in this, in this space. Could you take us through a few of the different treatment approaches that have been used so far and have some of the upsides and downsides of each of them? Yeah, so, um, you, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's a very short list of products that have uh, received uh, even, even emergency use authorization. Um, and, uh, and the reason is that the data that's, that's come out from the studies um, involving these products has been mixed at best. Uh, if you look at the, 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 the four that the people talk about the most, uh, remdesivir, Lily, Regeneron, and dexamethasone, uh, dexamethasone seems to work uh, modestly. Um, it's, of course, a, a very uh, simple old oral steroid. Uh, the, the ones that are, that are talked about more in terms of remdesivir, Lily, Regeneron, those, those products don't seem to work that well. The WHO had, a, had some very big uh, um, work that it did saying, and, and its conclusion was that remdesivir showed little to no effect in the real world in clinical study setting. Uh, the NIH and the Infectious Disease Society of America have, have come out against the use of, uh, of both Lilly's products and, and Gilead's product because of, of some of that work and, and other work. And even the head of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine has said that, that he doesn't believe that remdesivir should be used as a routine treatment uh, for COVID patients in the critical uh, care ward. So there's a lot of concern about, about whether these things are working. Uh, we know also convalescent plasma has a very uh, mixed record. Um, and again, this goes back to the, the time question. We, we don't have enough time to, to do all the clinical development and, and, uh, and, and the long pathways for clinical development that you typically do for drug development. So you do some work and you, you make a course correction based on the data and you do more work and you make another course correction. And that's kind of how we've been operating. But the result is that we have uh, several uh, widely used drugs with, uh, with a mixed record of success. And there's, there's absolutely a need for a new drug that will have uh, more dramatic and more sustained uh, success uh, in a clinical study, setting and a real world setting. So that's what we hope to do with, with our product, Opaganib and and we're working very hard on that. So yeah, you guys are taking a dual mechanism approach to COVID treatment, I believe. So what advantages does that approach have? Yeah, so, so the two main processes that are thought to drive uh, how COVID-19 works are first, in the early course of infection, uh, that the disease is, is primarily driven by the replication of, uh, of, of, uh, of the virus and uh, the, the respiratory um, uh, the acute respiratory syndrome of the virus. Later in the course of the disease, the driver, the, it's thought that the disease is, is more driven by, by the exaggerated immune response, uh, which, which causes the virus 
to, to have tissue damage and, and work on, on various uh, organs. Uh, so I think that what we're doing different is that we have a dual mechanism of action in opaginib and that we address, we, we target both the anti-inflammatory and the antiviral component of this disease, so both the cause and the effect. And I think what you see with something like remdesivir, which is a broad, broad spectrum antiviral or, or Lilly's product, which also uh, works on, on blocking the viral attachment and entry to human cells, is, is a very focused um, way of treating the disease. I believe that by working on, 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 both, on both mechanisms of action, the cause and the effect, the way that the disease spreads and the way the disease uh, causes damage, that we'll be able to have a very unique effect uh, and, and we'll, we'll have uh, some unique advantages for our, for our product. So we're very excited about that. Where we are right now is we're in the middle of a, a phase two, three study, a global study, uh, being done in, in several countries in the world, including the UK. Um, and we're, we're very excited to, uh, to see the readout of that study. And uh, of course, resistance from virus mutations is obviously always a concern here. Are there any ways in which you're trying to mitigate against that? Yeah, I'm glad you, you, you brought that up because it's, a very, it's another very big important advantage of our product. Um, and that is, and, and you see a lot of people talking about this also, is that with these variations and with these strains, the South African strain, the UK strain, others of Brazil, there is concern that uh, the monoclonal antibodies, which are the, the Lilly products and the Gilead products I've talked about, what little possible effect that they might have might be completely uh, obviated by, by these strains uh, and future um, mutations. One of our big advantages, Opagonum's big advantages, is that it doesn't work directly on the virus, it works on the host. In other words, it works on, on the body. And by doing that, we're able to cast a much wider uh, net of efficacy, a much wider net to make, make sure the drug works. And we hope by doing that, we'll be able to capture uh, and work uh, with all these resistant strains that we see emerging. So we think that's a big advantage of Opaganib and one that will get a lot of attention, especially for our data that's coming out uh, is very good. It means that we have a drug that isn't just effective now, but could be effective well into the future as we see with the current strains and more strains, uh, more, more and more challenges. Yeah, the drug is also, it's an orally administered tablet, I believe. So yeah. Any particular advantages when it comes? Yeah, it's a huge advantage. Uh, you see a lot of uh, uh, people talking in the US of the fact that, so remdesivir, so all the, these products that I mentioned, remdesivir, uh, Lily's products, Regeneron's products, these are all, uh, drugs that are given in a hospital set, setting in an injectable format, uh, and that has caused distribution challenges uh, for a lot of these hospitals. And that's why you see uh, a lot of reports that the government has spent, U.S. government spent billions of dollars to purchase supplies, and a, and a small percentage has actually been used. Uh, and that's because the hospitals just don't have the capacity uh, uh, to, to, to use these, these formats. We have an oral pill which is as, as simple as you get in, in the drug world. So it could be widely used. It overcomes these uh, distribution and administration challenges. And we think that could be another very big advantage uh, in terms of getting this, this drug out there into the hands of the people who need it. I'm interested to know if there are any lessons from Red Hill's previous work um, on other disease areas. You guys were specializing in gastrointestinal and uh, infectious diseases in the heart. Any other therapies that you've worked on? Any lessons from those you're drawing into your COVID work about? Yeah, so a, a good example uh, of, of, uh, of an analogy is, is our 
product for H. pylori infection, uh, Telicia. This is a product that we developed uh, in-house. Uh, we conducted two successful phase three studies, submitted it to the FDA, and got it approved on time in six months uh, with really no major uh, clinical questions. Uh, the reason we're able to do that and, and we bring that, that same skill set and, and work ethic to this program is laser uh, focus on the study, uh, on getting the patients in on execution, making sure the studies are done to the highest standards, and making sure that we run, run, run. We don't slow down for a second. We keep in mind that, that we have a phrase, the patient is waiting. And uh, when you're in clinical uh, study mode, uh, you really have to run and work as hard as you can to make sure your study finishes on time and you get the, the product or your drug into the hands of those who most need it. I suppose that links back to what we were discussing earlier about um, time being a factor in uh, successful failure of previous COVID treatments. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys are having to deal with that in particular, the sort of time pressure? Yeah, well, we have a team that really from, uh, I think, February, March has been working around the clock. We have a dedicated team uh, uh, doing that. And they we work weekends, we work uh, days and nights, and we don't stop because we realize that, that the time sensitivity here means that every day counts, uh, every patient counts, and, uh, and we, we are just we're doing everything that is possible to, to be as fast as we can to get the results, talk to FDA, and, and figure out how we get this product uh, out there. Um, another thing that we're doing on the manufacturing side is we're not waiting to, to get emergency use authorization to begin manufacturing. So we're doing a lot of the manufacturing work in parallel so that if we are able to get uh, an approval, we have supplies available and, and can start uh, making that available to patients as soon as possible. So working in parallel, working around the clock, uh, and, and working, working hard is, is the, the core things we've learned about how to do this well. And I would assume that it's probably the fastest development time you've ever had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've gone from in under a year to being within reach of, uh, of a discussion with FDA around emergency use authorization. So absolutely uh, fast uh, turnaround. And, and the good thing for us is we have, uh, as a company, we have a commercial infrastructure in place. Uh, we promote uh, three FDA-approved products in the United States. So if we're able to get emergency use authorization, we have all the infrastructure in place in order to get the drug uh, into the hands of uh, a hospital. So we have a, a trade team available that has uh, connections with uh, distributors. Uh, we have a quality team in place, a compliance team in place. We have all the, all the uh, medical affairs team in place. We have the, all the core components we need so that if this drug is, is given that authorization, um, we really can take it all the way, take it all the way home to the hospitals and, and into the hands of patients. And do you think these experiences, both for companies like yourselves and for governments and the FDA and regulators, do you think that'll speed up drug development and approvals in the future, even after the pandemic? I hope so. I think uh, one of the big challenges of drug development is just the time and the expense that it takes to, uh, to take a drug uh, from, from the beginning all the way through to approval. And, you know, there's always a balance between getting all the, the, the scientific and medical questions answered and also keeping a regulatory path um, that is reasonable for drug companies to do. Uh, if, if, uh, if it takes 50 years, nobody's going to develop drugs. On the other hand, we have to make sure that drugs are, are safe and efficacious. 
So there's a balance there. Uh, I think FDA does a very good job of trying to, to find that balance. And, and I think this pandemic has taught us that uh, there might be ways to, to accelerate that. There might be ways to, to work faster, especially for drugs that are uh, critical for, for public health and for patients in areas where there's a big unmet medical need. And, and hopefully that's uh, something good that will come out of, uh, of this uh, drug development uh, episode. And COVID-19 is obviously an incredibly new field and we're learning new things every day. But I'm interested to know how you see the overall field of COVID treatment developing in the near future. Are there any other approaches to treatment that we haven't discussed yet that might become important? Yeah, you know, nothing so far has proven itself. It's one of the big uh, challenges uh, around this virus is that there's been some success on the vaccine side, but on the therapeutic side, many, many companies have approached, have, have tried to, to use uh, existing therapies or new therapies, and they and they and nothing has really worked. It's a very challenging, very tough uh, virus. Um, and antivirals in general is a very tough field uh, for development. If you look at HIV uh, drugs, you know, it took us a decade to, to get drugs that, that work. So when you're talking about a compressed timeline of, of under a year now to, to be able to see something that works, uh, we really have uh, pushed ourselves to the limit. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I think this is unfortunately a, um, a virus that's going to be around with us for a long, long time. So there will be uh, many opportunities for people to try out different methods. What's imperative now is to get a drug that works uh, better than what has been approved out there. And uh, I think Red Hill is, is in, in Opaganib is really at the forefront uh, with, with probably the most promising drug uh, near term in terms of data readout and a, and a unique mechanism of action. And going back to what we were discussing at the beginning, I assume that you see in the future that how we will deal with COVID as a disease that's going to be with us for a long time will be a mix of vaccines and treatments. Yeah, there's going to be a mix of vaccines, a mix of treatments, mix of new social norms, uh, behavior, distancing. You know, unfortunately, I think this has changed us. It's not a short-term thing. I don't think anybody who's in the field believes that uh, we're going to eradicate uh, the virus um, anytime soon, uh, if at all. So yeah, I think unfortunately, uh, vaccines is, is an area that's going to continu continually be worked on, as is therapeutics, and as are um, other social distancing measures, masks, uh, you know, all the other things that we've unfortunately gotten used to. Well, there's certainly some fantastic things there I think we're all going to be keeping our eyes on in the near future. Um, I think that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. But uh, thank you so much again, Guy, for joining us. It's been really interesting. Thank you very much for having me on. And that concludes episode 31 of the Pharma Forum podcast and George Underwood's discussion with Guy Goldberg from Redhill Biopharma about new ways to treat COVID. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website to sign up for daily or weekly email pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, where we are at Pharma Forum. Pharma Forum.